Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to see you all this morning. In fact, let me tell you how good it is to see you all this morning. Just a couple of words of appreciation for GCA. I went on Tuesday morning to a breakfast for local pastors, and the objective of the meeting was just to give pastors an opportunity 
to get things off their chest and talk about their particular situation because pretty much everybody talks to us. It's difficult for us to find somebody we can confide in. And while I felt sympathetic to them, with each of them that spoke about their church, I sat there the whole time saying, boy, I like GCA. I've said this a lot the last couple of months, but we're very healthy right now. GCA is just very uh, agreeable right now. And I appreciate that because that's you all. Who said what? Was there? Yeah, no drama. Oh, you not know it's low drama? Okay, so a little bit of drama. Okay, some amount of drama. But see, that kind of interplay and that kind of laughter is exactly what I'm talking about. We can all enjoy each other together. And the way the world is these days, that's a rare and a precious thing. And I forget sometimes how rare and precious that is. And then I hear other men talk about their churches and their bodies and their politics. And I just, I'm very grateful. So thank you. Thank you for 20 years of letting me stand up here and plow away at the word of God. You have all been very, very patient with me, and I appreciate that. Thank you. It is time for Poetry Corner with Uncle Jim. (laughs) I would uh, like you all to listen carefully. I'm going to read you a poem. I am going to ask a question at the end, and I expect you to be able to answer the question, so I do want you to listen carefully. I'm going to read you the poem by Robert Frost that is called The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. What's that poem about? Luann, what's that poem about? Decisions in life. Interesting. Micah, what's that poem about? Your answer was correct. No, no fair piggybacking on Luann's answer. What's that poem about? I was, I was going to say experiences. It's about experiences. Interesting. 
about life decisions. What's that poem about, Tom? They're both about life and how you do life. About how you do life. What's that poem about, Elizabeth? Maybe the consequences of the choices you make. Mm -hmm. Every one of you who answered just engaged in what is known as hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art of interpreting something. What the poem is actually about is a guy walking in the woods, (laughs) and there are two paths, and he took the one that was less walked on. But part of the reason that this poem is as famous as it is is because when you hear it, it does inspire you to think about your life and your choices and your decisions. And yet the poem doesn't say anything about life and choices and decisions. What it says on its face is, I was walking through the woods and there were two paths and I took the one less trodden. And then that line at the very end, and that made all the difference, is enough to make you think, oh, there's something else going on. And then you automatically engage in hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. The word hermeneutics came down to us in the English language from the god Hermes, perhaps pronounced Hermes, depending on whether you want women's bags and shoes or not. Back in Acts 14, Paul was on the Isle of Malta, and he had healed one of their chief men. And when the crowds saw that, and they saw what Paul had done, the Bible says, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men, and they have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus, the chief of the gods, and they called Paul Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Hermes was one of the Olympian gods, and he was considered a herald or a speaker for the gods. And he was able to move quickly and freely between the worlds of the mortals and the worlds of the immortals. And so because he was able to speak for the gods, his name became the basis for the study of interpreting the words of the gods, hermeneutics. In poetry, the same thing. Anytime you're looking at something that requires a certain amount of interpretation, you are engaging in hermeneutics. And all of you did hermeneutically very well this morning because you actually did engage your creative brain, fill in the gaps, and start interpreting This morning, we're going to begin our study of the book of Revelation. That's why I thought it was important to start by talking about hermeneutics. Because no book in the Bible is more subject to hermeneutical interpretation than the book of Revelation. Now, you can look all the way through the Bible, and nowhere will you see the words, interpret this. There is no instruction telling you to interpret the words of Revelation, but because Revelation is so full of symbols, because it is full of visions that John has seen, for that reason, it almost begs for interpretation. I would like to posit the idea this morning 
that revelation is not so much meant to be interpreted as it's meant to be understood. And the way that you understand the book of Revelation is by understanding quite literally the whole rest of the Bible. We studied our way through the book of Revelation as we were becoming established as a church 20 years ago. Since then, we've gone verse by verse through every book of the New Testament and the vast majority of the books of the Old Testament. And the more knowledgeable you are of the Old Testament, the more you understand the Old Testament, the more you can understand the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation is, in fact, a very Jewish book. So much of what the book of Revelation says is drawn right from the language of the Old Testament, particularly books like Daniel and Ezekiel, with the exception of one chapter. Every other chapter in the book of Ezekiel is quoted or alluded to right here in the book of Revelation. So if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand Ezekiel. So that's why before we came back to Revelation, we've taught our way all the way through, verse by verse, through Ezekiel. We've gone verse by verse through Daniel. We've gone verse by verse through all the prophets of the Old Testament so that the language of Revelation is going to sound familiar. And so it's necessary that I explain to you before we get into it how we're going to approach it because there are so very many approaches to the book of Revelation. So I'm going to tell you right up front what I plan to do, and then if you find that interesting, you'll be back next Sunday. But I'm going to explain to you in as much transparency and honesty as I can, I'm going to tell you how I plan to approach the book. There are two ways to look at the book of Revelation. There's what's known as the historicist view, and there's what's known as the futurist view. The difference between historicist and futurist is there are things said in the book of Revelation that are very prophetic. John speaks just like all the Old Testament prophets. The language is just like the Old Testament prophets. So then what are we going to do as we're reading it? Are we going to read it and understand it to be satisfied, fulfilled somewhere in history, just like so much of the Old Testament prophecy? Or are we going to read it and say, this is future to us? And that's really the big difference. Are you going to look at it as a historicist or a futurist? I will tell you that I come down on the side of futurist. Because one of the ways that it is viewed historically is to say that the book of Revelation describes in types and symbols the whole history of the church ever since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ until his ultimate return. The problem with that is the folks who take that view, and I've read plenty of them, they have great difficulty filling in the details of the book of Revelation with actual historic events that have actually taken place in the last 2,000 years. And so it is more likely, as we'll see as we go through the book, it is much more likely that the book contains things that are still future to us. And that's the way I'll be approaching the book. 
We are, here at GCA, we are a reformed church. What we mean by that isn't, we used to be one kind of church, and then we changed. <laughs> we, we reformed. What it means is we hold to the theology of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation informs us on the subject of soteriology, the question of how men get saved. Is it done by works, or is it the grace of God that accomplishes salvation? And that was the primary battle, the primary debate that brought about the Protestant Reformation, because the Catholic notion was, as Roman Catholicism was the chief form of Christianity on the vast majority of the planet for roughly a 1,000 years, from 500 to about 1,500 generally, and that's when the Protestant Reformation happened. Because people began to see, people like Martin Luther, people like Ulrich Zwingli, people like John Calvin began to see that Rome's version of salvation, salvation by works, salvation by effort, didn't square with what the Bible said. What the Bible says about salvation and how people get saved is that people are saved by grace. Okay, now why did I bring all that up? Because Protestant Reformation theology often goes by the nickname of Calvinism, and Calvin, like Luther, like Zwingli, like Huss, they all had tremendous influence on the theology that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So much so that John Calvin wrote a commentary on every single book of the New Testament except one. You know which one he didn't write on? The book of Revelation. Because he just didn't feel like he was educated enough in it that he was willing to talk about it, and because the Protestant Reformation was primarily about the question of soteriology. The Protestant Reformation was not about eschatology. Do you know the word eschatology? Eschaton is the Greek word that means last things, end things. Put the logia on the end of it, it means words about. So words about the eschaton, words about last time things. Eschatology was not what the Protestant reformers talked about. Instead, what the Protestant reformers did is just kind of adopt Rome's view of the future. They did not reform their eschatology. They reformed their soteriology. And we're very, very grateful that they did. That is very helpful in understanding what the Bible says about how people get saved. But it said nothing about eschatology. And so the credo that came out of the Protestant Reformation was always reforming. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. We here at GCA take that to heart and have continued to reform even our eschatology and the way that we approach the Bible. So we are reformed and we are also futurist. That makes us sort of unique within Reformed churches because most Reformed churches follow after John Calvin's version of just kind of not talking about eschatology. 
just kind of ignoring it. And so there is a camp within the Reformed Church that just doesn't talk eschatology. Now, on the other side of that equation, there are churches out there, not necessarily Reformed, there are churches out there that get too much out of eschatology. You know what I'm talking about. That's the left behind camp and the people who go too far, the late great planet Earth people, who find too much in the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation just begs for interpretation. So people start interpreting wildly. So we're going to try to avoid both of those pitfalls. We're not going to avoid what the Bible says because it is the Bible. We're not going to ignore what it says prophetically, eschatologically, nor have we ever in the 20 years of our history. But we're also going to make sure, at least hold me to this, make sure that we don't end up getting too much out of the book of Revelation. When we get to Revelation 20, we're going to be introduced to the idea of the millennium. And when people talk about the book of Revelation, boy, that's right where their minds go. They go straight to 1,000 years. And then there's arguments within the church. When is that 1,000 years? Has it already happened? Is it happening right now? Is it going to happen in the future? So there's a lot of math. There's a lot of numbers in Revelation, particularly groups of 12 and the number 7, which is generally agreed represents completeness. You're going to see 7s show up a lot in the book. You're going to see 12 show up in the book. You're going to see a whole lot of math in the book. And the reason I point that out is by the time we get to Revelation 20 and the word 1,000 shows up, 1,000 years, I want you to recognize how John has been using numbers all the way through the book. He's been using numbers with mathematic precision. And so that's going to help influence how you read John's use of numbers. We'll talk about all that when we get there, but for the moment, I just want you to concentrate on historicist versus futurist and recognize that we're going to approach it from a futurist standpoint. When you start talking about the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church, then people start arguing about when does that happen? Does that happen before the tribulation? During the tribulation? After the tribulation? When or does it happen at all? Those arguments we're going to pretty much avoid through the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation actually says nothing about the rapture. And that's kind of surprising to people. But most books you read about the rapture in Revelation push it into the book of Revelation. Look, if you want to talk about the rapture, and we have, and we do, go to First and Second Thessalonians. Go to Paul's writing about the Corinthians. Go to the texts that actually talk about the rapture. And once you get there, you can learn everything you need to know about the rapture. But the book of Revelation simply does not bring it up. So when people read that John was called up into heaven, they start engaging in hermeneutics. They start interpreting. And they say, oh, now John is a symbol of the church. And because he's a symbol of the church being caught up to heaven, that's uh, the rapture of the church. Well, see, that's all interpretive. And my goal is not to interpret as much as it is to understand what John has actually said. I take a face value hermeneutic to the Bible. When I read the Bible, I read the Bible at face value. In other words... I'm willing to let the words on the page 
mean what they say. Complicated, huh? <laughs> I'm willing to let the original authors say whatever they want to say. And then our job is to adjust our thinking to bring it into league with what the Bible actually says. And that is the approach that I have used whenever we've come across words like election or predestination. It's like, okay, but it says that. People will argue against it, but it still says it. And we interpret or understand those words based on what they say and what the meaning of the word is. I assume that if God, when sending his Bible through his prophets, having people write down his words, I assume that if he had meant something else than what we read on the page, if God had meant something else, he would have said something else. But he used these particular words because these are the particular words that best convey the meaning that he wanted to convey. And so the words on the page mean what they say. Now, in many Reformed camps, they will argue that same thing. They'll say, but the Bible says salvation by grace. And that's the foundation of their argument. But the Bible says predestination. But the Bible says election. And so they're very firm about what the Bible says until the subject of eschatology comes up. And then suddenly what the Bible says is a jump ball. And you can impose any meaning you want onto the words. Well, I, I don't do that. Instead, we're going to read the book of Revelation at face value. And what the words say is what they're meant to say now. In a face value hermeneutic, we also recognize figures of speech when we see them. We know a simile when we see one. We know a metaphor when we see one. People who argue against the way that I look at the Bible say that I'm a literalist. That's the word that they will use. Because so many people want to allegorize the Bible. They believe that it's such a spiritual book that you can read the words on the page, but the words on the page are not the real meaning. There's a hidden meaning. There's a deeper meaning. And that if you dig deeper, you can allegorically figure out what that meaning is. The problem with the allegorical approach to the Bible is that then the meaning of the Bible changes according to the allegorist. Depending on who you're listening to, they can preach the exact same text and come up with two completely different meanings for that same text because they are avoiding what the text actually says in favor of what they think it says, what they have interpreted it as saying. But as I've already said, the entirety of the book of Revelation has figures of speech, has symbols, yes, but every one of them, practically without exception, can be found somewhere else in the Bible. And as we find them in other places in the Bible, the meaning of those symbols, the meaning of those visions is actually given to us in the other place. So all we got to do is understand it. We understand what the original vision meant, and then we can understand what the vision in Revelation meant. Is that too difficult? Nope. What that is, is a biblical 
hermeneutic. It's allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. Because if we're just going to do an allegorical reading of the book of Revelation, then what I think, what Ming thinks, what Jeff thinks, everybody's got a valid opinion. And the Bible changes according to opinion. And I don't like it when people bend and shape the Bible to make it fit their particular predisposition, what they want it to say, what they prefer it would say, what their system demands that it says. I don't like that. I think if this is, in fact, the word of God, it is our job to understand it and align our thinking with it, not change it to fit our thinking. Make sense? Yes. Here, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Whenever people are criticizing the face value reading of the Bible, and they say it's literalism as if that's a bad thing. You read the Bible literally. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I literally read the Bible. Yes, that's right. But the argument they'll pose is stuff like, well, you're a wooden literalist, and so when Jesus said he's a door, that means that he's a piece of wood with a hinge on it, and he's got a little handle, and you open it and close him. And that's why it's so important to point out that we understand figures of speech. When Jesus said he was a door, we know that's a simile. And we know what he was trying to say. There's nobody in this room who doesn't understand what Jesus meant when he said, I'm the door to the sheepfold. Oh, that makes us the sheep. He's the door. He's the way that we get into the sheepfold. So we do understand figures of speech. The book is called Revelation. That's the English translation of the Greek word, the Greek word is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis comes from apo, which means from, and kalupto, which means to cover something. So really, apocalypsis means to uncover something, to reveal something, and hence the word revelation. It is apocalypsis. Now, words, as we've talked about a lot through the years, words have denotative value and words have connotative value. The same word can have a definition, but then the way the word is used can alter its meaning. The example that I use so very frequently is you can look at something, let's say it's a new car, and you say, wow, that is cool. And somebody else says, that is hot. And you both mean the same thing. And you've just used opposite words. If you use those words by definition, then one of you is saying that car is cold to the touch. And the other is saying, no, it is warm to the touch. That's not what either of you meant. What you meant is, that's a car that I find desirable. It, that, that is a cool car. Yeah, and that car is sporty. It looks good, and I'd look good in it. It's hot. Okay, that's connotative value. The connotative meaning of words is developed through the usage of words and the context of how those words are used. Apocalypsis is the same way. The Greek word has a definition, and I've already given you the definition. The definition is the uncovering, the unveiling. And by the way, the very first verse of the book of Revelation tells you what is being uncovered? What is being revealed? 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so there you go. Now we know what the whole book is about. The whole book is about the revelation, the uncovering, the revealing of Jesus Christ. But that Greek word, apocalypto, has entered our language. In the English language, we have the word apocalypse. And the connotative value, the connotative definition of apocalypse, when we hear that word, we think of movies like Apocalypse Now. And so we think of terror, bombs, and end-of-the-world stuff. This is apocalypse stuff. And so we have an adjective form of that word, which is apocalyptic. That English word apocalyptic gets applied to the book of Revelation in order to say it's a different kind of literature than the whole rest of the Bible. Therefore, we don't interpret it or understand it the way we do the whole rest of the Bible because the whole rest of the Bible, with the exception of maybe Ezekiel and Daniel, the whole rest of the Bible is not apocalyptic literature, but the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. Therefore, we interpret it differently. Let me tell you how silly that argument is. What they have just said in that sentence is, The apocalypse is apocalyptic. Therefore, I'm going to use the argument that the apocalypse is apocalyptic to say that I'm going to interpret it differently. I'm going to apply allegory to it. I'm going to look at the symbols and just come up with my own imagination. And next thing you know, you've got people in the late great planet Earth saying that the demons that come out of the abyss are helicopters. So I don't agree with the argument, gee, the apocalypse is apocalyptic and therefore it needs to be interpreted differently. Instead, I say that we read and understand the book of Revelation exactly the way that we read and understand the whole rest of the Bible. How did you come to understand the grace of God? By reading what the Bible says. How did you come to understand your relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Because of what the Bible says. And you had to actually read what it actually said to come away with that understanding. So that hermeneutic, that approach, I'm going to be carrying over to the book of Revelation. Knowing that we do understand a symbol, but we will interpret it biblically. We will let the Bible define its own symbols and terminology But we will also recognize figures of speech when we see them. But we're going to use the same approach to the book of Revelation that we use to the whole rest of the Bible. Because I think you would agree that that approach so far has been beneficial to your growth as a Christian. Why would we change that? Make sense? Yes. Can you tell I'm still just introducing? Let me see if I can put one more nail in the coffin of this idea that that the apocalypse is apocalyptic. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, they're going to define what apocalyptic literature is for us. They say it's a literary genre that foretells supernaturally inspired cataclysmic events that will transpire at the end of the world. Apocalyptic literature is a product of the Judeo-Christian tradition, apocalyptic literature is characteristically pseudonymous. Do you know what the word pseudonymous means? It means carrying the name 
that is not the name of the actual author. It's a fake author name, for instance. The Apocalypse of John is actually included in the Bible. But in the first century, there were other apocalypses floating around. For instance, we still have copies of the Apocalypse of Peter. But it's not canonical. It's not in the Bible. Why? Because it was written after Peter was dead. And then the person who wrote it, a Gnostic who wrote it, then, in order to give it credibility, stuck Peter's name on it. So apocalyptic literature is characteristically pseudonymous. Secondly, it always takes a narrative form. It employs esoteric language. Esoteric means language that's meant for a specialized cult of people, a specialized group the people who have the decoder ring, who can understand what's actually being said. And that it also expresses a pessimistic view of the present and treats the final events as imminent. Any day, so it could be here. OK, so the book of Revelation, does it qualify, then, as apocalyptic literature based on that definition? No, because number one, we know the author. The author is going to tell us who he is right at the beginning of the book. But, as I'm also going to show you this morning, we have a whole lot of historic evidence of who wrote the book, when they wrote the book, where they wrote the book. And all of that is still extant evidence that still exists historically. So it's not pseudonymous. It's not a narrative story. Instead, it takes the form of Old Testament prophetic speech. It's not esoteric. It's written to the whole of the church and anybody who wants to read it. The point is, when you say the apocalypse is apocalyptic, that really just becomes an excuse to not read it for what it says and start interpreting it allegorically because it doesn't technically even qualify as apocalyptic literature. You get my point? Yes. Am I boring you? No. Okay. Turn to Revelation 1.19. This is the basic outline of the whole book. Revelation 1.19. John is told, therefore, write the things which you have seen. Okay, now that may be an instruction to write what we know as John's gospel. The things that you've seen, the things that you've already experienced. Write the things that you have seen and the things which are. That's the seven letters to the churches that existed while John was on Patmos. We'll get into all those details in a minute. John was intimately connected with the churches that he was writing to and was very influential over the seven churches of Asia. And so it makes sense that the angel of the Lord, that God himself would have John himself write letters to those churches because they know who he is. So write the things that are. And that's the first part of the book, the seven churches of Asia. But then write the things which will take place after these things. And that's really, really intriguing because it casts the greater portion of this book 
out into the future of John. So it becomes really vitally important that we ask, when was the book written? Because the first part of the book is the things that are. As John is still alive, as John is writing the letters to the seven churches of Asia, those are the things that are. But then he's going to write about things to come. And that's why people debate when the book was written. Because if the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD, the historicist camp will tell you that what the book of Revelation is about is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And therefore, it's all finished. It's all fulfilled. It's all satisfied. But if the book of Revelation was written after 70 AD, and it's about things to come, then it can't be about the fall of Jerusalem. And so that casts it out into the future. And that is part of the reason that I take the futurist view, because history tells us when it's written. And it was after 70 AD. Look at Revelation 4, the first two verses, if you would. Revelation 4, the first two verses say, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and there was one who was sitting on the throne. Okay, so you put those two verses together, and it's clear that the angel is telling John, I'm telling you future stuff. I'm telling you prophetic stuff. I'm telling you the things that are going to take place after these things. So it becomes vital, again, to be able to date the book accurately. We know that John, who wrote the Gospel of John and the other three epistles, is the same John who wrote this. In fact, turn to Galatians 2 for a second. This is a hopefully interesting little tidbit. I find it interesting. If I see all of you yawning and falling asleep, I'll know I'm the only person who finds it interesting. And even as I said that, Jeff purposefully yawned at me. So, Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. This is... The council at Jerusalem where Paul went up to uh, talk about how should we approach the Gentile church. After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, and in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. 
But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcision, the Jews, for he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to us, John and Cephas, who is Peter, and James. John, the writer of Revelation, they were reputed to be pillars, and they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we may go to the Gentiles, and they, John, would go to the circumcision. They only asked us to remember the poor, the thing we were eager to do. Okay. John's primary ministry then, according to the book of Galatians, is to the circumcised, is to the Jews. The same way that Paul's primary ministry was to the uncircumcised Gentiles, John's primary ministry was to the circumcised. This helps us understand why the book of Revelation is so very Jewish. Now, of course, once 70 AD happened, once the destruction of Jerusalem happened, the Jews that were there, including Peter, John, and James, became part of the general diaspora out of Jerusalem because they couldn't stay there anymore, so they were driven out into the Gentile nations. John, according to best history and tradition, as I'll show you in a moment, ended up in Ephesus, the very book we just went through verse by verse. John was very influential in Ephesus. Paul began the church in Ephesus, but John ended up there. Ephesus is on the seacoast of the Aegean Sea there, and there is a trade route because they were the seaport city there in Ephesus. There is a trade route, a circular trade route that makes a complete cycle back to Ephesus. You can take the road and go all the way around, and on that elliptical orbit as you're going around, you will pass through each of the six cities that is mentioned besides Ephesus in these letters. There was a church in each of those six cities. The seven churches of Asia at the beginning of the book of Revelation were all part of the trade route that went from Ephesus to Ephesus. In other words, Ephesus being a seaport city had a lot of influence. That's why Christianity was able to spread far and wide from Ephesus and why the influence of John was so well known to the six churches other than Ephesus because John himself was in Ephesus. Not only that, he also had tremendous power in installing leadership in the churches in those other cities. So it makes complete sense that John would be the person who wrote the letters to the seven churches. The early church fathers, writing less than a generation after Jesus had come and gone, for the moment I just want you to remember the names Irenaeus and particularly Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. He actually heard John in Ephesus. He actually studied under John. He was a disciple of John. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. So what Irenaeus had to say about the history of John in Ephesus is really important because he was getting it directly from 
a disciple of John. This Irenaeus lived and wrote in the late second century. You do know that year one through 99 is the first century, right? You know that? You know you have to live a year before you have your first birthday? Okay, same thing. Second century means the 100s, which is kind of confusing sometimes. People hear second century and they think, oh, the 200s, a couple hundred years after Jesus. No, no, no. Talking about the hundreds now. As a young man, he met Polycarp, and he was actually taught by Polycarp. He became a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp, in turn, is said by Tertullian in his prescription against the heretics. Tertullian tells us that Polycarp had been appointed the bishop of Smyrna by John himself. So this is the kind of influence that John is exercising among the churches that are named here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Did you know, by the way, I'm just going to throw this out as a historical factoid. Do you know where the city of Smyrna, Tennessee got its name? Do you know why we're called Smyrna? Because originally, this was just a stop along the railroad tracks for lumber, which is why you have all the, all the lumber yards up by the train tracks up there. And so originally, there was an encampment here of lumberjacks, of people who would cut down trees and then load them up on the trains that came through here. And the lumber workers built themselves a little church. And they named it after the book of Revelation because the church in Smyrna is the only church of the seven that gets nothing but commendations from Jesus. Jesus has nothing negative to say about the church of Smyrna. So they, knowing that, built a Presbyterian church, a reformed church, and called it the church of Smyrna. And so this train stop to pick up lumber became known as the Smyrna stop because the church was right there by the railroad tracks. And then as it incorporated and became a township and became a city, it became known as Smyrna because of the book of Revelation, the only church that Jesus said nothing bad about. I like that. <laughs> I like the fact that even the church of Smyrna can trace itself all the way back to its first bishop, Polycarp, who was installed by John the Apostle, who outlived all the other apostles. There, today, if you go home and somebody says, what'd you learn in church today? You've at least learned one bit of Smyrna history you can carry with you and know that our town is named Smyrna because of the Bible and because of some reformed people who worked as lumberjacks and built a church. The earliest written tradition places John in Ephesus. That comes right from Irenaeus in his book Against Heresies. Book 3, chapter 3, section 4, for those of you who want to go look it up. During his explanation of how the apostles passed on the teaching of Jesus to their successors, this is what Irenaeus writes. He wrote, there are also those who heard from Polycarp that John, the disciple of the Lord, was going to bathe at Ephesus and perceived Centhius within 
and he rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse itself fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. Okay, the point of that quote is that it places John in Ephesus. So now we know when the scattering came, where he had to leave Jerusalem, we know where he went. He went to Ephesus. Historians also maintain that he wrote his gospel and his three epistles in Ephesus. And he was very outspoken against the pagan worship that was going on there. Now, we, in our men's group study of the book of Acts, looked again at how Ephesus was devoted to Artemis, Diana. When they drove Paul and his companions out of the city, they were chanting behind him, Great is Diana of Ephesus! Because he was in there preaching Jesus, who they saw as another god, a competitor god. They didn't want to hear that, so great is Diana. Well, it turns out, that on the Isle of Patmos, there was also a temple to Diana. Because the Isle of Patmos is in the Aegean Sea, just off the coast of Ephesus. You getting some sense of how this all ties together? Okay, so John's very outspoken against all the pagan worship that's going on there in Ephesus, which doesn't sit well with the Roman emperor Domitian. If you look at the history of the church, you know that the early church suffered a tremendous amount of persecution, but it wasn't continuous persecution. It really depended on who the emperor was at that particular moment, who is Caesar at this moment. Some were much more dramatically opposed to Christianity than others. In particular, we all know the name Nero because Nero did persecute Christianity before 70 AD. But then there was a period of relative peace and quiet where Christians were able to live in Rome and do their business and have markets. And then Domitian came along. And history tells us that Domitian was adamantly opposed to Christianity because he decreed himself to be a god. And he set up temples to himself and statues to himself. And he decreed that only he could be worshipped within his empire. And you've got all these Christians running around, not only not worshipping Domitian, but saying that there is only one God, and the emperor is not him. Well, Domitian wasn't going to have that. Roman historians, such as Pliny, describe Domitian as a violent madman who persecuted Christians. Domitian was also a believer in prophetic omens, and he was one of the few emperors who actually insisted on calling himself a god during his reign. In about 86 AD, a temple to Domitian was built in Ephesus, and at the same time, the people of Ephesus were forced to worship and make sacrifices to Domitian, practices that would have certainly been denounced by John and any thoroughgoing Christians. So John's opposition to emperor worship is why he ended up on the island of Patmos. In 94 AD, which was the 14th year of the reign of Emperor Domitian, John, by now a really old man, was exiled to the island of Patmos. 
During the Roman period, Patmos was known as a part of the Sporades Islands there in the Aegean Sea. They were a group of remote islands that were used for exiling or banishing people. Anybody who was considered a threat to the Roman Empire would end up on one of those islands. Some of the islands were just simple prison colonies, but Patmos, interestingly, if you read about it historically, had more going on than just being a prison colony. It did have a harbor. It had a town. It had the Temple to Diana, like I mentioned. It also had a gymnasium, which is kind of interesting. Both Pliny's natural history and the annals of Tacitus support that early tradition that says that John was banished to Patmos by the Roman authorities. The tradition is even more credible because banishment was a common punishment that was used during the imperial period for any number of offenses. Okay, so Irenaeus is perhaps the best historic witness that helps us date the book. And dating the book is really, really vitally important, like I said. Because if the book was written after 70 AD, then it cannot be referring in a future sense to the events of 70 AD. Instead, the events in the book of Revelation have to be post whenever it was written, post 70 AD. That is important because we already read the outline, which was write the things that are and write the things that are to come. And so when are these things to come? Irenaeus is the one who writes because he heard it right from Polycarp. He writes when John was actually on the Isle of Patmos. In the book itself, in Revelation itself, in verse 9 of chapter 1, John says, I was on Patmos. So there's no question about that. There's no question about who wrote it. There's no question about where he wrote it. Now there's just a question about when he wrote it. In his book that's titled Against Heresies, book 3, at the end of chapter 3, Irenaeus says, Then again, the church in Ephesus, founded by Paul, and having John remaining among them permanently until the time of Trajan is a true witness of the tradition of the apostles. Okay, we know when Trajan began to rule. He began to rule in 98 AD. That means that John is still alive come 98 AD, which makes him a very old man, I relate. Domitian died in AD 96. We don't know pretty much anything about John's release from Patmos. But here, we learn that he went back and remained in Ephesus. Eusebius, Ecclesiastical History, Book 3, Chapter 18, and other early church leaders and early church writing all repeat Arrhenius' account of the writing of the Apocalypse, that John was on the Isle of Patmos, and that's where he wrote it. In fact, even the Catholic Encyclopedia says that with Eusebius and others, we are obligated to place the Apostles' banishment to Patmos during the reign of the Emperor Domitian from 81 to 96. After Domitian's death, the Apostle returned to Ephesus during the reign of Trajan, and at Ephesus he died around 8100 at a great age. That's what the 
Catholic encyclopedia tells us. And so all of the historic sources, this is all I'm trying to get at, all of the historic sources place John on Patmos during the reign of Domitian. And that information came to us right from Polycarp, who was a disciple of John's, who then told Irenaeus. Irenaeus then wrote that down, and then other early church fathers continued to write that. So we have all of this historic credibility to the date. Okay, so now is everybody agreed on the date in the church world? No! No, they're not! No! Why? Because... People have systems, people have eschatologies, people have outcomes, people have traditions that they prefer that the 96 writing of the book of Revelation would completely blow up their system. And so rather than look at the history of the very people who heard it right from John, rather than look at that, they try to discourage people from reading Irenaeus by saying that Irenaeus made other mistakes. So he might have been mistaken on this one. And what they point to is, and I'll tell you now, Irenaeus said that Jesus died around 50 years old. Okay, he got that from the fact that when Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it, and the People who heard him say that, the Pharisees answered him back and said, you're not yet 50 years old. Based on that, Irenaeus came to the conclusion that Jesus was probably around 50 at the time of his death. Okay, so that's interpretively wrong. But when it comes to just reciting facts of history, Irenaeus is really, really important to our collective church understanding of the early church. You hear people refer to Irenaeus over and over again in every book about the church fathers and the foundation of the church. He's a very important person who occasionally made interpretive mistakes. But when it came to citing history, he didn't err. And so people try to say, well, you know, he got that 50-year thing wrong. Therefore, when he tells us that Polycarp knows for sure that John was on Patmos when he wrote this during the reign of Domitian, uh, maybe he got that wrong. Except that there's no evidence that he was mistaken. But his historic testimony rubs up against modern eschatologies, and so the modern eschatologies try to destroy the history so that they can support their system. Not a good move. Here's exactly what he wrote. In his book, Against Heresies, book 5, chapter 30, Irenaeus writes, and by the way, he, he was writing about, of all things, we're going to see reference in the book of Revelation, to the beast and to the number of his name, 666. Everybody knows that. If you've watched movies, you know that. And so he's commenting on that, and listen to what he says. For if it were necessary that his, the beast's name, should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision by John himself. For that was seen, that vision was seen not very long time since, but almost in our own day, toward the end of Domitian's reign. 
I already told you Domitian died in AD 96. Toward the end of Domitian's reign is 92, 94, 96 AD. That means that John, under Domitian, was on the Isle of Patmos toward the end of Domitian's reign, and that's where he received the apocalyptic vision, according to Arrhenus, who got the information right from Polycarp, who got the information, who got the information from John. And that's the way history works. You try to find the earliest eyewitness you can find, and there's no better evidence in a court of law than eyewitness testimony. And we've got it right here. So there's really no argument to be had about when the book was written. I said all of that. I went through all of that history with you to tell you one very important thing, which is that's why I take the futurist view. Because when John was on the Isle of Patmos, 92, 96 AD, he was writing things that were future to him, which things have not actually occurred yet. How do I know that? Jesus isn't here. If he was here, then we could say, okay, that's all done. Now, as we go through the book of Revelation, there are going to be details that I'm going to have to say to you occasionally. This is the best understanding. If you want me to tell you everything in Revelation and everything eschatologically with perfection, if you want me to tell you absolutely every detail and explain it to you with perfection, I can do that for you the moment it happens. But until then, we're just going to have to read it. We're going to read it at face value. We're not going to try to interpret it. We're going to try to understand it. We're going to spend a lot of time, again, connecting Revelation to the Old Testament so that we can understand the symbols of the Old Testament. Let me close with this, and we'll call it a morning, and we will pick up at Revelation 1-1 next week. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and he communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John in the book of Revelation. This is how Jesus is going to be referred to. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is the emphasis we're going to put on the whole book, that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of all the end time stuff. It's not the revelation of the 666 guy. It's not. All of those are the details that all serve the purpose of revealing the splendor and the glory and the wonder, the majesty and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the point of the book. Everything else is details. He is referred to as Christos, as Christ. We just read it in Revelation 1.1. He's referred to as the faithful witness. He's the first begotten of the dead. He's referred to as the prince of the kings of the earth. He himself calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. He calls himself the first and the last. He's also the son of man. He calls himself he that lives and was dead. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. He's the one who walks in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He's the one who has a sharp sword with two edges coming out of his mouth. He is referred to in Revelation 2.18 as the Son of God. He's the one who searches the reins and the hearts. He has the seven spirits of God. He has the seven stars. He's the one that is holy and true. He has the key of David. He's the one that opens and no man shuts. 
He's the one that shuts and no man opens. He is the amen. He is the faithful and the true witness. He's the beginning of the creation of God. He is Lord. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is a lamb as it has been slain. He's the very lamb of God. He is Lord of lords. He is king of kings. He is faithful and true. He's the rider on the white horse. He is the very word of God. He is the Lord God of the holy prophets. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the bright and the morning star. And that is said about him in Revelation 22:16. And everything else I read fills in the whole rest of the book of Revelation, where over and over and over again, he is referred to in great majesty and splendor and power and authority. And if you'll stick with us through this book, I promise you, you're going to come away with a genuine blessing from it. How do I know that? The book of Revelation contains seven blessings. I told you to watch for that number seven. There are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. The first blessing is found right away in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Reads it aloud. Reads it to the church. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. The second blessing is found in Revelation 14.13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. The third blessing is in Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. The fourth blessing is found in Revelation 19, 9. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words of God. The fifth blessing is found in Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The sixth blessing is found in Revelation 22, 7. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy that is written in this book. And the seventh blessing closes up Revelation. Revelation 22:14. 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have a right to the tree of life and go through the gates of the eternal city. I'm telling you, there's a tremendous blessing to this book promise to the one who reads it out loud and the ones who hear it. And that's why I say you can only receive those blessings if you hear the actual words that are written in the actual book. And so we are going to try to stick to what the book actually says and do our best to understand it because this is what God has told us and the end result is great glory to our God and King. Amen. Hopefully, I'll see you all next week. And you know right where we'll be starting. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.